Welcome to Lit Health. I'm Tracy Granzik, your host and senior director of the Center for Healthcare Narratives at the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, along with editor-in-chief of Please See Me, an online literary magazine seeking to elevate the voices and health-related stories of vulnerable populations and those who care for them. On Lit Health, we'll be lighting a fire underneath the status quo of healthcare through interviews with authors, healthcare leaders, and policymakers, all working to create a healthcare environment that is equitable and transparent and that welcomes the needs of every patient, especially our vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, people of color, women who feel they are still at risk in our current health system, the elderly, and anyone who feels bias or the isms affect their health or quality of life. Join us to stoke the fire. We want to hear the health-related stories from our listeners on both sides of the bed rail, the courtroom, and the aisle. Today on Lit Health, we're speaking with Steve Burrows, writer, director, performer, and producer who took time out from a successful film career in Hollywood and around the world to advocate for his mom after she was harmed by medical care in Wisconsin. Steve Burroughs is a comedic storyteller and award-winning filmmaker who has been reinventing stereotypes and challenging expectations in film, television, commercials, and theater for over two decades. His original voice, coupled with his edgy, character-driven humor, has made his work a favorite around the world, where his range in comedy is as diverse as his locations, including London, Rome, Tokyo, Bangkok, South Africa, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just to name a few. Burroughs began his career in Chicago, joining Second City director Del Close as a member of the critically acclaimed and groundbreaking improvisational comedy group Barron's Barracudas. After relocating to Los Angeles, Burroughs began his film and TV career with an award-winning short film, The Soldier of Fortune, about his actual appearance and subsequent humiliation on the Wheel of Fortune game show. From there, Burroughs became a writer-performer for the famed comedy troupe The Groundlings, leading to stints on everything from Seinfeld to America's Funniest Home Videos to over 200 TV spots, including a litany of appearances on the Super Bowl. It was his original screenplay for 20th Century Fox Chump Change that was Burroughs' directorial feature film debut, taking him to the prestigious AFI Film Festival and to sell out crowds at the HBO Comedy Fest in Aspen, where he won an Audience Award for Best Feature. Jump Change was acquired by Academy Award-winning Miramax Films for distribution, and Burroughs then went on to win over 75 awards for writing, directing, television commercials on five continents. But when Steve's mom, Judy, went into the hospital for a routine partial hip replacement and was left in a coma with permanent brain damage, he dropped out of show business to care for her. It was after the insane, frustrating, and trying decade that followed while fighting for his mom's life and for medical and legal justice that I first crossed paths with Steve. Burroughs had turned the experience and the injustice into his latest creative endeavor, the HBO award-winning bittersweet documentary film, Bleed Out. Since its debut, Bleed Out has become a clarion call to action in American healthcare and with medical and nursing students across the United States. The truths uncovered have inspired a state, national, and international outcry to fix the medical industrial complex by changing laws and driving policy to improve safety, not only for patients, but caregivers as well. In honor of his mom, Steve has also become a fierce patient safety activist. So Steve, thank you so much for making time to be on Lit Health. I'm really glad to have you in the mix here. And, and the stuff that you've done on the, on the patient safety side and the patient advocacy side with your creative talents is just something that we needed in the patient safety world. But I want to go back, you know, where, where did you get started? What first drew you to the stage? I got, I got a late start. 
And this is something that I, I, you know, nothing I can do about it, but I really regret it. You know, I was not involved in theater or anything in high school or college. Those eight years, boy, would I like to get that back because I was always, I always had a knack for humor, but I never applied it to like, how could I maybe do this somehow? And I ended up going to college, you know, I studied, you know, literally I had degrees and majors in political science and film criticism and popular culture, like completely useless degrees. And it wasn't until my, I graduated uh, from University of Wisconsin with these useless degrees. Uh, I mean, it was a great time. I, it was one of the saddest days of my life when I left college, but now what? And um, I had no encumbrances. So I, I literally, uh, and I had no prospects. So I moved to Chicago, literally just moved to Chicago, didn't know anybody, didn't know anything. And at one point when I got down there, I thought I would like, I, I was going to blues club. So I thought maybe I would be like, a, I would be a drummer in a blues band or something like that for a while. And then I went to see a, a show over at the Improv Olympic called, uh, well, it was the Improv Olympic, it was called the Herald. And they were improvising entire plays based on one word. And Del Close was the guy who invented this, Del Close and Sean Halpern. They came up with this improvisational format where you would, they, they'd take a one word from the audience and literally these groups would improvise an entire 45 minute play right there on the spot. And my life changed overnight. I saw a group called Barons Barracudas do a, a play on the word cardboard. And it was just life-changing for me. The next day I signed up for a class and I got lucky because I took a class like the next day and Sharna put me in a group the next week. And I was on stage within a week of seeing my first Herald. And the compressed version of it is about three or four months later, uh, four of the guys in Barons Barracudas were hired by Second City and they they needed some of these new young Turks to come in and replace them. And I, I, I got picked. Del Close put me in this. I, I was in Barons Barracudas uh, 2.0 and I spent the next four years on stage, like improvising. And it was based on Dell's philosophy of truth and comedy, which was without even really knowing it, that was my philosophy as a human being. I didn't, I didn't, I just told stories. I, and I based it all on the truth. And I, I found my home. And the next thing you know, it was, uh, you know, laughter. It's, it's like a drug. Once I, once I felt that organic, natural reaction from the audience, by just being truthful to my sensibilities, that was it. I was hooked, and uh, I've never stopped. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of careers were launched through the Herald and Del Close and Sharna Halpern and Improv Olympic. Who did you cross paths with on stage back in the day? Well, um, I'm not generally a name dropper, but you uh, you served it up one time. Uh, we were told by Del and Sharna to come in because at one point uh, this group for for whatever reason it was a, a eclectic group we had people like Joel Murray was in this group and Dave Pasquese and John Judd and Bill Russell Howard Johnson and Finnegan Brian, Brian e. Crane we were all from different parts of the, the United States and we just all came together and for some reason we had this group mindset where we were we ended up being for a while we were we were probably the best improvisers in Chicago and not my words but Del Close's words and one time we came in and Dell said, you're going to be improvising with some famous people for the next several weeks, and it's going to be quiet. And we came into the theater, uh, and it was Bill Murray was there, Brian Doyle Murray, an actress named Dana Delaney was there, Jamie Gertz, Bud Court from Harold Maude was there. And over in the corner was this guy who I, I had just seen in a movie called Tootsie, and it was Sidney Pollack. 
He just won the Oscar. He had just won the Oscar for Out of Africa for with Meryl Streep. And they were going to try to improvise a movie with Sidney Pollack directing and Bill Murray starring. And they wanted us, the Barons Barracudas, to teach these actors and celebrities how to actually improvise. And I remember Dell saying, you know, everybody on this side of the room is scared to death that these celebrities were making millions of dollars and winning Oscars. And over here that people who have won the Oscars and have millions of dollars have no idea how to improvise. And they're scared to death of you. So everybody on stage. And that was that was something else to spend time with people at that level when I was that young. I actually I remember Sidney Pollack actually said, you know, he was such a nice guy. And he's just coming off of Africa and Tootsie. And he's in Tootsie. He plays Dustin Hoffman's agent. And I remember him saying uh, at, during a break, he said, so what do you do? And I actually said, I, I, I can't believe I said this. I said, I'm a filmmaker too. <laughs> I had made a movie about a brick, right? And he didn't, uh, he, you know, he was, he did not humiliate me for that. He was very generous with it. But that was a a, a, a really incredibly learning experience of, of uh, weirdly teaching professional actors who have incredible careers how to actually improvise. And uh and I also, like, I got to know people like in my in my my trajectory. I got to know people like Chris Farley and Bob Odenkirk. Mike Myers was there all the time. You know, all these people who were kind of hanging around the Del Close thing. I would eventually then go to L.A. and be in the Groundlings. I was in the Groundlings with Sherry O'Terry and Will Ferrell. So, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with some incredibly, incredibly talented people. Yeah. Well, and that's you know that's just it. Like that starting place is one aspect of a career, a creative career, it's not an easy road. I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't even want to guess what what percentage of people make it from places like Improv Olympic to a, a Will Ferrell career. So not even, not even 1%. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, one of the things I'm most proud of in, in my career is I somehow, I just stuck with it because I basically, you know, when I met Margo, my wife, you know, we started talking about maybe moving out to California. And, and I remember her saying, well, what do we do for a living? I said, you know, I, we got a problem here because I really don't have any marketable skills. I, I don't, I have no degrees that will help us. Like I can't even get a job at McDonald's. I mean, I suppose I could, but I wouldn't last. I had this thing, this storytelling thing. And I was a natural performer and a, as it turns out, a natural writer and a natural director. I never went to school for any of this stuff. You know, I just, it was kind of in me. It's kind of, you know, I loved movies and I loved comedy and I just decided I'm doing this. And I'm going to, you know, I'm either doomed to succeed or I'm doomed to fail. And I, get, I started getting jobs and I started, you know, working in commercials as an actor and I started making money. I got into the Screen Actors Guild. Then I wrote some scripts and I got into the Writers Guild and then I, you know, into the Directors Guild. And, and um, for me, I just stuck with it. But I, I don't think if I hadn't gotten hired, I, I don't think I would have stuck with it. You know, get, getting the gigs were huge. And once I learned that like auditioning was the actual gig, you know, getting the gig was icing on the cake. Once I learned that, you, you know, auditioning was the job of a performer, then I started to work. That's but it's tough. You know, I people all the time. You know, I get called all the time. Hey, my kid wants to go into showbiz. My kid wants to go into theater. My kid wants to go into, you know, be in movies. And I, my advice is don't do it. Don't do it. If you want to do it, don't do it. If you need to do it, then do it. Yeah. That's what keeps you there, right? You said the laughter was addictive. But you're also a natural storyteller. So, and that really rings true into the work that we're going to discuss later with your film Bleed Out. But what is it about telling stories, either comedic stories or dramatic stories, that, that really gets you fired up? 
Well, that's a that's a great question. You know, I, I just remember when I when I was growing up, especially you know watching certain films. There are certain films and filmmakers that just for whatever reason spoke to me. I don't know why. You know, I, I mean, it's, I studied film criticism. I can break down movies with the best of them, but it, it's almost useless in some ways because it's like, how does it make you feel, right? And I remember seeing movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Milos Forman and Amadeus, as a matter of fact, which I still think is the, the greatest film I've ever seen in my life. And like the work of like in television, David Milch, you know, with uh, NYPD Blue and Deadwood and David Simon with The Wire. These These are like, and by the way, none of this is comedy, right? None of this is, I'm not really attracted to comedy movies for some reason. I don't like go see comedy movies. I, I will watch them, but I want to see movies that have it all, that have the, 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 you know, the blood, the sweat, the toil, the tears, the laughs, everything. And, and these, these people that I, I, I just referenced, they, their work has all of it. It's got comedy. It's got tragedy. It's got everything in between. And those are the stories that, for whatever reason, have always stayed with me. And then I started to see that in my own life, I had stories that had those same elements. I didn't think about it critically. I just, my whole, my whole life, my whole approach has been guttural. I follow my gut. When I follow my head, I get into trouble. When I follow my heart, I definitely get into trouble. But when I follow my gut, generally it works. And that's how I kind of auditioned my own material before I put it out into the world. Whether it was performing, writing, or directing, whatever, I, I is like, is this going to, first of, does it amuse me? Is it a good story? Is it something that I, that I, that would resonate with me? And chances are, because I'm kind of a snob when it comes to this stuff, if it resonates with me, it's going to resonate with most people because I'm my harshest critic for sure. And uh, the storytelling thing, and I think most storytellers would, would probably say this, is that it's just, Shakespeare said, the play is the thing. Well, the story is the thing. You know, what would we do without stories? Well, how, 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 would, how would we get through the, the life without, oh, I'll give you a good example. Woody Allen, right? I love Woody Allen. And I'm struggling with this now because, you know. You and a lot of other people, I'm sure, because he was. His, 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 his criminal activity. So I've struggled with the art versus the artist. But he did, a, he, I mean, he, he's made a, a few masterpieces. He's made a lot of good films and a lot of bad films. But, you know, as Orson Welles said, you only need one good one. And Woody Allen made a movie called Crimes and Misdemeanors in 1989. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a funny person tell a serious story that was, I mean, this was dark. There was a murder in this movie, but it, with a humor. Like, but it's in the real world. It wasn't hijinks. It was in the real world. And I thought, that's it. That's it. I don't know how you do it. He told two separate stories simultaneously, seamlessly. You know, I, I, I wish he, you know, I wish he wasn't a criminal. It's, it's hard to watch these movies now, but I love some of these Woody Allen movies because uh, for the art and for the storytelling, and they're forever. Like if you tell a good story, it's forever. You make a good movie, it's forever. Yeah. You make a great TV show, it'll last forever. Book, same. You know, it's the key is how do you, how do, you do it? You know, that's that's just it. And I, you know, you left a mark in the patient safety world with your film Bleed Out, and unfortunately, it came at a great cost. You know, you've worked you worked so hard to get to where you were in your creative career. And then you had this horrible event happen to your family because of poor, not only poor care, but the medical legal machine that prevents doing the right thing after poor care happens. So you want to talk a little bit about the shift in your world after your mom's hip surgery and how it changed you. And then 
you know, how it kind of led you into creating this work of art really for this genre. Well, thank you for that. I mean, if you, if you would have told me that at this point, probably the best thing I've ever done is, is a movie about my mom in a coma and her brain damage. I would have said, like, if you had said that like 30 years ago, I said, what are you, you know, what are you smoking? But this was something that I always, I always admired documentaries and I, especially like hoop dreams and stuff, you know, these documentaries that take brother's keeper that takes five, seven years to make. I'm like, I will never do that. Who's going to do that. And then, you know, I'm going along careers going great. I'm directing commercials around the world, all over the world, literally like getting paid to go make funny Scottish commercials and Japanese commercials. And then my mom goes in for a routine hip replacement, comes out in a coma with permanent brain damage and everything stopped. It was just like, that's it. I didn't know if my mom was going to survive. I didn't know if she was going to live. So I, and she, she needed help. So I became her, you know, activated public attorney. I did everything I could do to help her medically. I found out from my uncle that this was a dirty deed. My uncle's a doctor. My aunt's a nurse. They told me that their, their records have been falsified and that the doctors were lying. And it was a whole cascade of medical errors. And it was a whole cover up. And I'm like, please don't tell me this. You know, and I, so I dropped out. I dropped out of show business 100%. I didn't know if I was dropping out for a, a month or a year. And, but I was obsessed with the fact that my aunt and uncle had told me that this hospital system had, had basically left my mother to die in this intensive care unit where there was no doctors and they were the, the intensive care doctors were replaced by camera doctors with cameras that aren't on in an intensive care unit. And like in, 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 in my mom's case, this, this hospital system and these doctors didn't notice my mom was in a coma for two days. I mean, how do you do that? So that was like in the world of literature and storytelling, that's the inciting incident, right? I didn't realize it, but that's the moment where the match was lit, where my life went from comedy to it stopped to now I'm on this mission to find out what happened to my mother, to try to get her the best care and, and to get her legal justice, because that's the only way that we could do it, because the hospital certainly wasn't doing the right thing. And I started filming for our attorneys, uh, our medical malpractice attorneys. Never once occurred to me that I would ever make a movie about this. I was literally just focused on telling my mom's story in, in a court of law. And I had all this footage. And then I had a friend, uh, a filmmaker in LA who said, you know, oh, I should also say that I started to help. I went undercover at one point and I started to use a spy pen because I, I found that what these doctors were telling me in to me personally, and what they were saying in court under oath on camera were not the same thing. So, and one doctor, Dr. Bauer, my mom's surgeon, who was a family friend who ended up just being a, you know, a liar. What he told me at this one meeting that I had with him, he spilled his guts and told me what happened. And I had recorded on the spot pen. And then, you know, four years later under oath, he says he never told me anything. And I thought, I might have something here. I have two pieces of footage. I have Dr. Bauer telling me what I believe to be the truth privately. And then I have Dr. Bauer literally committing perjury on camera. I've got both of these elements on camera. And my editor friend, I, I took these two pieces of film and I just had him cut them together just to see what it looked like. And it was like, you got to be kidding me. And he said, you ought to make a movie. And I thought, who's going to want to see this movie? And then I hadn't even thought of it. And then I found out uh, through through a, a Mar Margo started reading books about medical error. And there's this book called Unaccountable by Dr. Marty McCary. And we find out it's the third leading cause of death in America. And we're not alone. And we thought, wait, we got this pretty intriguing personal story. And yet there's also a, a universal 
story here as well that we did not know about. And that's when I that's when I put it together. That was the moment where I thought, you know what, I'm going to make a movie. And then when I found out how hard it was to succeed in court with these types of cases, then I thought, I'm definitely making a movie. So that was plan C, and then it became plan B, and then it eventually became plan A. That's how it happened. But I didn't I didn't plan it that way. It was definitely like a truth and comedy, truth and tragedy situation. It was a, it was a guttural thing. I, it was in front of me for years, and I never even never even thought of it. Yeah, this type of injustice destroys people every day. This medical harm. Did you intentionally turn to storytelling to cope with the loss? But you, I think you just explained that that it, it was a spiral. It was a you know, yeah. It was it was actually a natural evolution back to where I was one, once was right. You know, um, I, I didn't I didn't realize that my way out of this like th- this thing. This thing literally destroyed my mother. It, it destroyed our, our family. It destroyed Margo and I, our, our, our finances. It, it, destroyed, it, it destroyed my career. You know, my mom lost everything, including her life. Margo and I lost a great deal. And I, I was incredibly depressed and I didn't know what to do. And then once I figured out maybe telling the story was the way to go to expose it, then all of a sudden I was like almost reborn. It's like, wait a minute, it's right in front of me. Once upon a time, this actually happened. And there is nobody better suited to tell my mother's story and my story advocating for my mother than me. So I just went for it. You know, I shot this movie on my iPhone. I had, this is the most unprofessionally shot movie in the history of movies. It looks like crap. It sounds like crap. It's not a well-made film. No, wait, wait. I have to disagree. When it, when it, comes, to, when it comes to filmmaking. Yeah, you know, I hear you. I hear you. It's, it's, a, it's a run and gun guerrilla film. But the film was my way out or my way in, I guess, because it was made really with the only intention originally was to just tell my mom's story. And then I started to hear about all these other stories. I'm like, this is, you know, we have a chance to actually be the voice of the voiceless. Also not planned, you know, just kind of, uh, this is a very dull, close, improvisational, truth and comedy, Chicago improv movie. It just happened. And I just decided to start filming. And then I decided, let's make a movie. And course it took 10 years but yeah well it's brilliant and um the patient safety movement needed you um i can attest to that because we have been trying to tell stories for a long time that never hit the same bittersweet notes and on a large screen on an hbo funded movie like yours did well i appreciate everything you're saying about bleed out you know i in some ways i wish i could take credit for it i feel like now that the dust has settled the film's been out a couple years now you know i get asked you know for some reason, the movie works. And I, I really, honestly, I don't know why. I do not know why. It was hard to make, but it was honest, right? And it was, we knew we would have guts in there. We knew we would have the head and the heart, but how do you pull it all together? And I feel like if in the patient safety world, if I would have made this movie, for instance, after I knew the patient safety world, if I would have, let's say, met you or met someone like Dr. Mayer or the Patient Safety Movement Foundation, or the MedStone, or the LeapFrog, all these wonderful, beautiful, unbelievable organizations and human beings that have literally changed my life. If I would have met you all before I made this movie and then decided, hey, I'm going to make a movie, I don't think it would have been the same movie. I think it would have been a movie about, and why not, right? About the patient safety point of view or about, how do I say this so that it makes sense? I think I had to make this movie by myself. I think part of the part of the impact of the film is that I thought we were alone. 
going through this. I thought my mother and my family and my wife and I were alone. And this was our only way to do it was to tell this story. And I had to discover you all through this process. I don't think I don't think it would have been as an effective film had I known that, oh my God, there's so many other people who this has happened to. That's a different film, right? That's a different film. And, and that's, by the way, that's probably a pretty damn good film. One of the worst things I've, uh, I've discovered since the film came out is that there's all these unbelievably horrible things that have happened to all these people all across America. Now, one of the best things I've found since the movie's come out is because there's all these unbelievably wonderful people who care that I did not know about. But I don't think, had I known that, I mean, I made this movie out of desperation, right? I thought that no one cared. And I think that if I would have made the same movie now, knowing that there's a bunch of people that do care, I don't think it would have had the punch, yeah. right? I made this movie flailing in the sea of treachery, right? And that sea exists, but there's a lot of lifeboats out there that I didn't know, which I'm very grateful for. But I don't think, I think that there's a desperation in the film that helps tell the story. So this is exactly why Lit Health, why this podcast exists, because we're trying to let a fire under the status quo of healthcare. When right. you're in healthcare, you begin to censor yourself by the stories they want to hear, the way they want to hear them, either over right. that's the message you're getting, or you know it's more subtle. But the naivete to the bigger problem sometimes allows for more freedom. Again, at the expense of the loss that you experienced. I mean, that is, you know, like you mentioned. You came in and you found out I'm not alone. Sadly, you're not. There's so many people who are affected by harm. And your story is something that was so needed because it told it in such a way that it hits the heart and the head. Like we say, connecting the heart and the head of healthcare is what we're trying to do. You get desensitized to this stuff when you're on the other side because you hear it all too often. You're on your own. It's you're the only one. It's you against the world. And that's a story. What has been most surprising? to you in the process of getting to know the, the patient safety world through the lens of your mom's story and, and bleed out? Well, the, the first thing is that you all exist. I didn't know. I had no idea. I, 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 and I, by the way, this, this experience with my mother, the medical, the financial, the legal, the movie making part of it, that's a decade of my life that I did not know you all existed. How is that possible? Yeah. Right? How did I not hear something at some point? You know, the first thing we heard was Dr. McCary's book, Unaccountable. And it wasn't until after the film came out that we started hearing from people and certainly the patients. But then I started getting calls. From, I remember getting a call out of nowhere from Dr. Dr. Mayer in MedStar, like out of nowhere. And then I got a call from Leah Binder, the LeapFrog group. I guess that's the advantage of, you know, gutting it out and then getting a movie on HBO, right? It, that's the HBO thing, right? It's, we, we were lucky that way. We were able to tell our story unvarnished and have you know 20 million people see it. The biggest surprise, I was very nervous. I don't get too nervous or too anxious about anything, but I was nervous at first about it. I knew that the press would respond to this movie, and I knew that the public would most likely respond to it. But I, I was definitely nervous, and I talked to HBO about this. I thought, you know, the medical community, they're going to hate this movie because we name names, we name hospitals, we name doctors. Uh, it is not a love letter to the people who injured my mother. It's a hard movie. And I thought, well, the criticism of this film might be that I am like, I'm, I, I got a vendetta out for medical people and hospitals, you know, like in general, like this is like a revenge movie or something, but that's not the case. 
But I was nervous that I I don't like to paint with you know brush strokes. I thought someone's going to say, well, he's you know he's anti medicine, he's anti doctor, he's anti nurse, anti hospital. And I really thought, oh my God, I don't want these you know, all these people out there, all these wonderful you know. We know that the vast majority of doctors and nurses and hospitals and healthcare workers are doing fantastic jobs. And and as we just know from COVID, that the, the, there's heroic people out there in the in the millions. And I thought these people are going to hate my guts. And it was just the opposite. It was just the opposite. I remember saying, Mark, I remember Dr. Mayer, we had our first screening at the Telluride experience. And he said, well, I want to screen your movie. And I said, well, who's going to be there? He goes, well, there's going to be uh, residents, uh, doctors, nurses, uh, healthcare practitioners. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. They're going to be like there? He said, yeah, it's a whole thing. We're, you know, we're, we're teaching these, we're teaching accountability, transparency, and 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 which sounded great. I said, but oh, I, I told I told Dr. Mayer, it's into this movie. Your group of young students are going to get up in mass and they're going to leave. And maybe they should. I don't know. But I was afraid of it. And it was just the opposite. It was literally just the opposite. And I, I really still don't understand why. But the film has become teaching curriculum around the world for medical people. It's because they can't. You were saying things that they couldn't. And just to back it up a little bit, Helen Haskell was the person who told Dave about Bleed Out. And that's how these these initial roads connected, at least to the, the Dave Mayer and the Patient Safety Summer Camp. Um, Lewis's story, her son, medical harm, has been a story that is near and dear to all our hearts in this community. Yeah. And, and mine as well. Yeah. She, I mean, she's a, and has done amazing work like you have, like Carol Hummelgar and like Jack Gentry, who have all experienced these harm events, yet you're taking that loss and you're going out and you're talking about it and you're sharing your stories. How do you think, or do you think those stories, your story is impacting the way care is delivered, is changing the way patients are experiencing care? That's a great question. In my experience with, and just circling back to Helen Haskell, that is, that is correct. I, I, I love Helen. Uh, she was there that first day when we screened uh, the film for all those residents. And I was so nervous. She said, oh, relax. They're going to love it. And I go, well, I don't know, really? And she made a comment at the end of the first screening where she said, these are, these are her words, she said that for, for whatever reason, she felt that our film had an opportunity to do a boots on the ground, real world consequence, kind of like real change because we showed it. She said, you know, we all have stories. You know, there's all these different patients and their families. We, we, I now know there's a, a, over 50,000 people have reached out to Margonian with their stories and they're horrific and they're tragic. And they are, and they're, I mean, these, these are the, these are sacred stories that deserve to be told, but most of these pe people can't, you know, they, they, they don't have the opportunity to tell their story, maybe on a blog or on a Facebook post or something like, like that. And Helen said that she thought that the reason that at least in our case with my mother in our story of bleed out is that you could watch it in real time because I filmed it. I filmed for those lawyers from the beginning of my mom's coma all the way through to the trial. And it was in real time. It was in first person. It was in the moment. And Helen said, she said something to the effect of, unless you see it, I mean, you can read it. You can read it in, a, in, a, in an article or a book. And those are all valid ways to tell stories. But for whatever reason, like seeing my mom in a close up in a coma, slowly dying while doctors are under oath lying. It's just a visceral, palpable thing that I had. I was lucky enough to be able to do. And 
now I know, you know the, these other incredible stories that frankly deserve their own movies or on TV shows or whatever. The Jack Gentry story, Carol's story, Helen's story. There's a the, the movie that the movie that you made about Helen. I mean, I I know it by heart. You know, I've, I've watched it dozens of times. It's phenomenal. And when I think of the Helen story, I think of that one close up of Helen talking about her boy, where she's just you just see the her lips starting to quiver, and that's it, right? If I can't, if I, if, if, if you hadn't shot that, if I, if I'm not, if I'm not looking at Helen Haskell's face as she's talking about her boy, if I'm reading the same story, for instance, I will, if I'm reading that story, I'm going to, I'm going to feel, I will, I will have a reaction to it. But if I'm watching Helen tell the story, or as I've seen Carol tell her story, I've seen the Jack Gentry story in person. It's different. There's something about when people can experience the story from the people who experience the harm. Then you got something. Now, like I'll give you an example. Uh, just this past summer, we we did a, another Telluride thing with the. Uh, I know it's not uh, it's not a Telluride anymore. It's the Academy for Emerging Leaders uh, Patient Safety, and one young guy from Mississippi. He was a anesthesiologist. He looks like he was twelve years old, and he came up to me after screaming bleed out. He said, "I want you to know that watching your mother." go through that experience has forever changed the way I'm going to practice medicine in my entire career. And I got choked up and I asked him why. He said, because I saw it. I hear about it. People don't talk about it. We hear things, but no one, no one, no one talks about it. And you're not only talking about it, you're showing it. And he goes, I can't get it out of my, it, it's in me. It's, it's, it's in, it's in me. It's in my bloodstream. And that's at least in my experience, in my opinion, that that's the kind of stuff that's going to really help Real change happen when something goes wrong in medicine, because we all know it's going to happen. We're all human. We all make mistakes. What are you going to do in that moment of truth? And I'm hoping that at least with bleed out that the people who have seen it, especially the medical people, when that moment happens and they got to decide which way am I going to go, they're, they're going to think back to Judy's story, Jack's story, Carol's story, Helen's story. And they're going to go, you know what? I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cover the consequences of doing the wrong thing are so much greater than the consequences of doing the right thing. I just don't think it's that hard. I now know the entire picture of the medical industrial complex, but boy, when something goes wrong, you got to do the right thing. But the British say, let, let right be done. Why is that so hard? Yeah, it's a choice. It's a choice. You're saving your career, your perception of what your career should be. What you just described is how stories can change us too. You know, there's so many, there's so many avenues we could take this conversation right now, but you know, I was going to ask you where did bleed out have the greatest impact? I will tell you that I think like Helen's story, like Carol's and others who have had the chance to share this with the medical students at the Academy for Emerging Leaders and Patient Safety, that's how care get cha gets changed. Cause you plant that seed at a point in their career where they're not needed. Right. They don't have the big mortgage. They don't have three kids. They don't have all these other things on their mind where those decisions become there's more weight, you know, to preventing them from doing the right thing because they're they have other excuses. You know, there was another uh, teacher at the at the event this past year. Crystal Morales, I believe, is her. Oh, name. yeah. Crystal's great. She's another MedStar star. Yeah. And, and Crystal said she had an interesting perspective on why she shows her students bleeding. She said, I want people to know that, all right, so the event happens and something goes wrong and they're on the floor and the patient's on the floor and they either live or die or whatever happens. And then when that patient leaves the floor, no one ever knows whatever happens to that patient after they leave that floor. 
She says, but your film shows what happens to that patient after they leave the floor. It's a 10-year slide into hell that destroyed a wake of destruction that not only affected my mother and took her life, but our entire family and our way of life. And she said, that's, that's what I want my students to see, that you, know, you may dodge the bullet today if something went wrong and, you know, and all of a sudden that patient's no longer on your floor and you're like, oh my God, they're gone. Ooh, whatever happened to Judy Burroughs? Whatever happened to Jack Gentry? Whatever happened to Carol and her, and her daughter? Or Helen and her son? Whatever happened, they don't know. And she said, that's really important is to see the, the long-term fallout of one single mistake. Yeah, or one single poor choice or selfish choice. It's or a one line. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Just okay, we're not we're not gonna do the right thing and we're gonna just cover and hope that it never, you know, obviously in our case with you know Aurora, they thought either my mother was gonna die and maybe I get a little better, but you know, they got 90% chance of if we got out a seven-year trial, they still have a 90% chance of winning. They just never thought that we would go all the way, not only with the trial, but then we would film it and turn it into an HBO movie. Because who gets to do that? I'm, well, so I, I'm very lucky. I, I don't take any of this for granted. Yeah, luck. I don't know about luck. I think it's talent. And I think, like you said, it's gut and it's a true north. And all those things came together to create the perfect storm for this environment. But again, I, I can't, you know, I know it came at great cost because you'd rather have your trade it all to have your mom, you know? So I, I don't even want to go there too long because <laughs> then, then it gets, then this interview turns emotional. So I'm not going to go there. So, I mean, it's okay. I mean, I'll go anywhere you want to go. I have no problem doing it. Well, I speak for a lot of people in this universe that they're very grateful you came into it for many reasons, not just the film, but just who you are as a person and all that you add and bring to every meeting that, you know, I sit across from you at. And, you know, these are, you know, these stories have changed my career path too. You know, I was, I was in a global strategy role with a pharma company and just writing on the side. And I heard Helen's story and it, it just changed my life. Um, yep. just across from you and Helen and others and having these interviews and conversations has changed me. You know, it's made me a different person too. So let's, let's kind of, I know our time is, is kind of coming to a close here. I want to hear what's next for you creatively because you've put a stamp in this space, but I know your heart and your soul wants to do other things creatively too. And you should. Well, I definitely, you know, I, I do miss comedy. I do miss, you know, show business. It's who I am. But I'm, I'm, I am different now, though, too. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not just the Seinfeld, chump change, all the crazy commercials I did for all the, the British and the, you know, all, the, all the nutty stuff that I did for America's Funniest Videos and just like all the wacky things. I am that person, but I'm also bleed out, too, now. You know, I'm, I, I think I'm no longer one note. You know, I think before I, I played, I played the comedy chord pretty well, but now I've learned to play more chords. And, and now that I've met folks like you and, and, and all the patient safety, beautiful folks and all the families and the patients and, and all the loved ones we've lost, I, I think it's really important to figure out a way to tell those stories too. So I'm going to try to do it all, basically. I'm, I want to get back to comedy. I have a, I have a, I have a, I've written a, a brand new feature comedy that I would love to make as it, you know, it's a, it's a musical, it's a music thing. And so it's just a, it's, it's the antithesis of bleed out. It's just like raucous, good fun, you know, a big summer music movie. I've also written a hardcore drama. I stumbled into a real story that has been brewing inside of me uh, that I saw actually overseas on a shoot in Bangkok. 
And I've been working on that movie for, for a long time. That one is also, I'm almost done with both of these feature film screenplays. And I would love, they're so different, so they won't, they won't compete against each other at all. But then I'm also trying to figure out a way to uh, serve the patient safety world and basically do what I did with Bleed Out, but in a television series where I would tell other stories from all different POVs in the patient safety world and in the medical, you know, not just patients and their families, but also from the point of view of the doctors and the nurses and the insurance companies and the risk managers. And from everything that I've seen at every time I go to any of these conferences or, or events, I keep going, I didn't know this. I didn't know this existed. And I've never seen a show, a documentary type, you know, half hour a week, or maybe it's an hour. I don't know. I mean, this thing could go on forever, but there's just so many stories that I feel that need to be told that you can't just cram in a movie. I could do that like the same thing. Like I could, I could do, let's say a movie follow up to bleed out where I have the Carol story and the Helen story and the Jack Gentry story and all these other stories that absolutely deserve their own time. But then it's, then they're just going to be like five minutes in one movie. And these stories deserve more time. And now I think we could do, I, I, I think I figured out a way to do a, a real deep dive television series in the style of bleed out, but looking at all the different perspectives and uh, I've never seen it done before. So I think I might be the guy to do it. You got to make it. You are the guy to do it. <laughs> that sounds fabulous. It's something I'd want to watch. So get her done. I'm, I'm, I'm on it. You know, I'm uh, currently juggling chainsaws and quicksand, but <laughs> getting, I'm close. I'm very close. Very cool. Well, I wanted to close with um, one of the sweetest memories of your mom, because we always, I always love, those moments where we dedicate things to Judy, she's she has left a big impact on the world too through her story with the students and with, with those of us who had the good fortune to meet her. So I want to close with that. Boy, there's there's so many. I'll give you one that's a, a kind of a contemporary one. Right before uh, right before she went down, right before she had her surgery, uh, I had surgery out in Los Angeles. And uh, there's no other way to say it. I had lost surgery. I had a triple hemorrhoidectomy. And at Cedar Sinai, and it was tough. I was in Cedar Sinai for seven days, and I was I was in trouble. I was in horrible pain, and I was just out of my mind on drugs. And Margo was really not sure what to do. My, my surgeon knew I would pull through, but it was like uh, it was not life threatening, but it was it was one of those. It was just a horrible, really. It was bad. And I remember there was one day, like in day five or six, I'm just laying there on you know morphine or something and all of a sudden in the door this is in california in the door there's a person who comes in who looks exactly like my mother and it's my mom and she's got this little bag she just came from the airport she got on a plane from milwaukee wisconsin she showed up went straight to cedar sinai showed up on the the ass ward and i remember be, i remember being so touched that my mom you know, I'm, I'm a grown man. This was, you know, I was, you know, as I think if I was 40 years old and my mom shows up and I, I remember looking at her, I go, what are you doing here, mom? And she said, well, my, my baby boy needs me. And she came over to me and she held my hand for a full afternoon. She just sat there and just caressed my hand as I'm pushing my pain meds. And there's something about the way that she, she just knew that I needed my mom you know, emotionally, physically. And I will tell you then the next day, everything changed. She said, okay, Steve, enough's enough. It's time to, it's time to get the, 
let's let's get the show on the road. And I'm like, mom, ass surgery, you know, you know, she she has she was like the velvet hammer, right? And she started um, she said, because I was whining all the time. And she says, you know, you know, enough of the whining. It's time to get moving. And then she said, you know, Steve, I had the exact same surgery when I gave birth to you. So let's get going. Let's get a move on. And then I I realized that she was uh she gave me the hug and then she gave me the slap on the face. But my recovery from the moment that she entered that room began. And I'll, I'll just never forget her saying that my baby boy needs me. Because you know what? I did. I did. She got me through it. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that story. And I could totally see your mom doing both the hug and the push. She went, it was over the top nice and then over the top hard. Yeah. But it worked, right? It's like, oh my God, my mom's telling me like, uh, it's time to Big boy sweatpants, because we know things Exactly. Enough's enough. It's not heart surgery. It's ass surgery. Let's go. I always saw someone bleed out from a hemorrhoidectomy one time. Because, again, a thinner drug that that was missed or thought that it had cleared the system. It's nothing to to really laugh at. Yeah. My surgeon told me, she said, there's going to be, you know, like that movie, there will be blood. It's just the way it is. Because there's, you know, it's where all, you know. All the parts of the body come down and there's just a lot of arteries and veins and all that stuff. It's just, it's the way it's going to be. And uh, Well, I have to say my, one of my favorite memories of your mom came through your film and, and it was what a free spirit she was to live the life that she chose to live, to love the people that she chose to love. She reminded me a lot of my mom in that respect. And so that's that Midwesterner. Maybe that's the toughness of all of us that we just, you know, no matter what's going on in the world, we figure out a way to live the life we want to live. Yeah, she found it. She found it with going you know, in, the, in the Turkey, going to Turkey. And she had her, you know, she had her boyfriend over there in Turkey, Ramazan. And what she taught me was that, you know, life is, she had a, many hard years prior to finding Turkey. And I love the fact that she just decided, I am going to be happy. And it, it's just, it, and it's so badly for her. But the one great thing is that my mom did get to see before she passed away, she did get to see the reaction to bleed out in her story. And on the top of all the press and the public and all the people that reached out to her, the thing that gave her the most hope and the most joy was knowing that her story was being used as teaching curriculum for the, the medical universities and medical schools and nursing schools and ELPS. And that that was the thing that made my mom the happiest when she she because she knew that you know she was from a family of doctors her brothers were doctors her dad was a doctor she knew that doctors left her to die but she she also knew she had time to appreciate that her story was now going to affect doctors and nurses for the rest of their lives and she was a teacher to the end yeah that's her legacy her legacy is in the end she's actually teaching all of us how to actually behave when something goes wrong no thank you for the work that you've done for sharing your mom with us, sharing your family's story with us, and for making time to hang out with me today on, on Lit Health. Appreciate Absolutely. It. Thank you for this, and thank you for this this whole series of podcasts. These are, these are essential, critical stories that need to be told.